Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, sponsored by Flying Penguin Graphics, audio production by Kieran Nemont. And here's your host, Curtis Brown. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Want to Be a Producer, the podcast for emerging producers and creatives wanting to know how it all begins and how to get where they're going. I am your host, Curtis Brown, and I, of course, am joined by our audio engineer, Kieran Nemont. What's up, Brew? Oh wow, quite the uh, quite the delay there, Brew. What are you What are you doing over there? No, let's just blame the let's blame the connection. Blame your internet okay, yeah. for that. No, yeah, yeah, you can blame my internet. <laughs> Anything exciting in uh, Niemann's life? In Niemann's life, uh, no. Oh, I just found out my friend had a baby. Uh, really just just like that's what you were doing you were actually delivering the baby that's actually what's going on on zoom right now is kieran is delivering a baby on zoom and i am watching it and that is why he is not paying attention so that's that (laughs) that's the end of it anyway get to the podcast (laughs) (laughs) okay so make sure you check out the show notes everyone where you can see our social media pages and our guest social media pages so make sure you subscribe click them give them a follow um and basically that's it i don't think there's much to talk about i think season two is already off to a really strong start um we've already just recorded episode three as well we've got three tony winners in a row the the hat trick is like what we say in hockey. Um, and I'm really excited about this next... <laughs> Kieran's laughing because they don't have hockey in South Africa. Um, no idea what that is. <laughs> yeah, no, of course not. Only only Canadians do, apparently. And only Canadians really give a damn about it. But anyway, the point is, is uh, we've got some really exciting guests. And our guest today is super, super great. He deals a lot with the marketing of shows. And you can consult with him. You can He's consulted with NBC Universal. You name it, he's done it. He's a really great guy. He was really kind to take some time out of his day to to join us. So, Kieran, take it away. Our guest today is a Tony Award-winning theater producer and live entertainment consultant who, according to his private life section on his Wikipedia page, lives in New York City. And from what I can see on Zoom and deciding to trust Wikipedia, well, that apartment could be anywhere. But what we do know is that he earned his MBA from the University of Notre Dame and graduated from DePaul University. His Broadway producing credits include How I Learned to Drive, Indecent, and Deaf West Theater's Revival of Spring Awakening, which under his production management led the show to win six ovation awards, including Best Musical in two categories. Not a big deal. His co-producing credits include Macbeth starring Alan Cumming, Tootsie, Significant Other, The Band's Visit, Torch Song, and What the Constitution Means to Me, which you can now stream on Amazon Prime. Combined, his Broadway productions have grossed over $700 million and have a recruitment rate of 46.7%, which is twice the industry average. While he isn't producing successful Broadway productions, he consults for major studios, producers, theaters, and agencies to help them discover how they should market their shows and for their best chance of financial and critical success. He has also held live entertainment roles at Nielsen, which is an, a data and marketing information firm, and NBC Universal, where he was a part of the team that made the company to be named one of the best places to work for LGBT employees. He is the executive producer for the television series Indoor Boys, serves as vice chair of the board for GLAAD, and sometimes asks Amazon live chat employees if they've read reviews for the share show. Welcome to the I Want to Be a Producer podcast, Cody Lassen. I'm thrilled to be here and gobsmacked by the research you have done. <laughs> there you go. You've been all over my computer the last week. So I have uh, gone through your Twitter, everything, LinkedIn, you name it. I was there. I'm so happy you're here. Seriously, your office is super beautiful. I love I love the uh, 
I love that you have all your playbills up on the wall. That's something I've always wanted to have. I could completely be working from home right now, but it's truly just a mental health thing to have four different walls to look at a couple days a week. So I'm I'm still going into the office. I I, I imagine. Uh, Is Wikipedia correct? Is is the private life section correct? You live in an apartment in New York City? It's correct. Shockingly, yes. Who updates these things? Was that you? Did you put that in there? Was it your team? No, I mean, you can, you know, uh, Wikipedia, I think, is in a way just a notch above the Broadway World message boards and that any. Anybody can anybody can edit it, and I think if you dig into the edit screen, you can try to like figure out who that is. But I truly, that's the extent of my Wikipedia expertise. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked here, but you know, I'm so happy that you were able to make some time for us to come on here onto the show and show your expertise. You know, one of the first things I always ask all our guests is how they start to get into producing and how how exactly that happens, and how did you start and get into producing. Uh, it started when I was seven years old, and my parents took me to see Cats uh, on tour, the the national tour of Cats. Uh, so, like a lot, you know, like most people in our industry, you you know, you fall in love and you experience the magic for the first time as a young person. Yeah. Um, and I can remember, you know, at the time, I was, you know, interested in how did that tire fly in the air? Who sold the tickets? How did that TV commercial get made? Um, right. But you know, I think there's not a there's not a, even today a clear path forward if you're a young person and interested in theater, I think your parents think, okay, well, I'll sign you up for music lessons or singing lessons or dance lessons, not kind of realizing that, you know, you can be a producer, an accountant, an electrician, a plumber, Mm -hmm. like there's a whole breadth of of things you can do and still be involved in the theater. Right. And so what was the first thing that you ended up like producing? Like you didn't go straight to Broadway. What was like the kind of in between? Did you do any like short films? Did you do any like basement cabarets? Like were, what, what was that experience like? Um, no, I mean, I kind of lucked up. So first of all, uh, you know, fast forward many years, I didn't think there was a path for me in this industry right. because mm-hmm. there's, you know, not kind of a clear cut. If you want to be an actor, you study acting, you take lessons, you go on auditions. Correct. Um, so it wasn't until I applied for a job at uh, Universal Studios, which is now NBC Universal, right? Um, working uh, strictly on live entertainment, so nothing on the film side, but living, right. breathing people. Um, to this day, one of my favorite projects I worked on there is a 22-minute version of Wicked um, that played at the theme park in Osaka, Japan. She she flies, she belts, she comes back down. They do it eight times a day. No. Um, yes, it's it's truly like I I shouldn't say this, but I think if you do a little. Googling, you can find videos of it on, you know, completely unauthorized bootlegs of it um, online. Oh my God, that's so cool. Uh, It is. It's it's truly, you know, Broadway production values, but just kind of a a condensed version that probably makes no sense unless you are familiar with the show. Do they just do like all the big hit numbers? Is like they're the Wizard and I in there and they just like dance through life and like. Kind of the the best hits and, you know, the, the book is certainly shrunk down, but even the songs themselves are shrunk down. It's truly kind of a, you're watching like a sizzle reel of the best parts of the show. Working at Universal, um, you know, when they're producing things like Wicked and Billy Elliot and Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, and, you know, that opened a lot of doors, you know, made a lot of introductions for me that I wouldn't have been able to do on my own. Um and then went from there to, to the uh, Center Theater Group, one of the largest nonprofit theaters in the country, was mm-hmm. their marketing director for a short while, um, and teamed up with some friends to do uh, a revival of Spring Awakening with Deaf West Theater in a tiny little 99-seat theater. And that was kind of the first time I said, okay, I've, I've worked for big organizations you know, that produce right. theater, but here, here's a chance for me to do it on my own. Wow, that's super exciting. I mean, and you guys ended up transferring that in like less than a year or just over a year, didn't you, from LA to New York? 
Uh, we did. If if the calendar worked out right, it would have been exactly a year. But to wait to open on a Tuesday, I think it was a, a day a day longer than a year, but almost oh. exactly. Wow. And you want to know a fun fact about that wicket too? I have a friend that's seen it four times. I think he's seen it all in the West End. And every time he's seen it, she's never flown. That's got it like... What That's luck is that? Like, I was going to say, like, he should play the lottery. He should. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm like, man, make sure you like are looking left and right before you cross the street because you might be getting hit by a car with that luck. Yeah, I feel uh, like there's not even like on YouTube, there's not a lot of no-fly clips. That's impressive. I, I know. I When I first heard that, I was like, oh my God, there's no way. So you end up going to like Deaf West Theater. So how do you find your first investors? Like, w- what's that process like? Are you sending emails to everyone? Are you picking up the phone? Like, w- what's that? what's that like? What's that search? like? Yeah, I mean, it's literally telling everyone about the show and about what you're working on and asking if they're they're interested. Um, you know, I didn't have a network of high net worth individuals kind of in my, I was going to say Rolodex, nobody uses a Rolodex, uh, <laughs> but you know, in my in my Google contacts already. Right. Um, but it's literally about getting out there and hustling. You know, the nice thing is at the top of every play, playbill is a list of the co-producers who raised, you know, the biggest amounts of money. So these these people are not difficult to find. Right. Um, it's about having a, a good show, having a lot of passion, mm-hmm. um, and then pounding the pavement and, and telling people, you know, about the show. And I have, um, you know, there, there's a, a server at Joe Allen, a, a restaurant here in New York, um, who's been a co-producer with me. Uh, you know, never in a million years that I think, you know, the, the woman who serves me my drink before I even have to order it uh, would be interested in co-producing, but, but she was. So it's truly about just not even asking people to invest, but telling everyone what I'm working on. And I hope that my enthusiasm and excitement for the project comes through. And then they're right. self-selecting and saying, well, wait a minute, can I, can I be a part of that? Right. We actually just spoke to Ken Davenport and he, sp- he spoke something very similar to what you just said in, in the sense that he was like, people invest in the person. You're not just investing in the horse as much as you're investing in the guy that's, that's riding that horse. And I guess that's the same thing. When you can show your passion and, and, and your desire to get something done, I guess, People, people are attracted to that. Uh, they are. Um, and, you know, it's also something I didn't know going into this is raising money is maybe at most 10% of the time I spend on any given show, at, at most, probably closer to 5%. Wow. Um, but it just happens to be the first step and the most visible step. And I think right. to outsiders, even in the industry, that's what they think a producer does is, is raise money. Right. Um, but it, it's truly like in the grand list of things. And especially the more you do it, you kind of have systems in place, you start to build an investor pool. So to me, that's never kind of the scary part or the, the you know, the part that determines whether I'm going to do a show or not, because that kind of goes on autopilot. It's all the stuff that comes after that, that keeps me up at night. Right, right. And what would you say is the scariest part when you're trying to mount a production? Um, I mean, getting the team together, making sure it's the right team. Right. Um, right. We're such a collaborative art form that I think that's where a lot of the magic happens is these checks and balances. And um, I, I hate to say this and sound Trumpian, but, you know, sometimes even disagreements of, you know, different folks in different departments. Well, you know, OK, now I've, I've got to defend my position. Why do I think this specific thing should be done this way? Right. Um, and I do truly think that some of the magic is getting a bunch of passionate, smart, artistic people in a room and then solving problems and pitching ideas. And hopefully the best stuff floats up to the surface. Right. Wow. That's so great. I love that. So can you explain a bit of the producer hierarchy in a Broadway show? Like what is different from a lead producer to an associate to a co-producer? Sure. Uh, It's a little confusing because theater and film and television and music, we all use the same titles, but they all mean very, very different things. Correct. Um, 
kind of the you know in a in a nutshell version for commercial theater, the 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 producer, uh, you know, with the capital P, who kind of you know informally we might refer to as a, a lead producer. Um, people often refer to it as a general partner, even though Broadway shows have not been LLPs for many years, but have been LLCs, so they're actually managing members. But regardless, um, that's the person who's kind of leading the charge. They have the fiduciary responsibility and the legal responsibility to run the operation. You can kind of think of them as the CEO if this was a big corporation. Gotcha. Um, then come the co-producers, and you can kind of think of them as the board of directors if this was a corporation. So imagine you know, you're know you starting a new company. The co-producers are going to help raise the funds to make that company happen. They're going to be kind of a, a brain trust for the producer to lean on and say, I'd like some advice. I've got this problem. Have you ever faced this? How, how did you solve this? Um, you know, gosh, I need a connection to this company or to this person who in the room, you know, is one degree away from them. It, it's, you know, those folks are your brain trust. Some of them want to be and are very, very involved and they're at meetings and they're on email chains and they're really a part of the team. You know, some of them have a, a full-time day job and they're kind of as involved as they're able or willing to be. Um, but it's really my, you know, at least my philosophy for co-producers is Let's get a bunch of smart people sitting around the table because I guarantee you if a problem arises or if we need a favor to be called in, the more smart people you have at the table, the more likely someone will raise their hand and say, I've, I've got a solution. Let, let's make it happen. Right. Um, and then we have uh, kind of a new thing in the industry, executive producers, um, which really are, are mainly used in two cases. And that's basically a producer for hire. It's generally a more um, seasoned producer or general manager. And that's generally, if you're a first-time producer on Broadway, you might hire someone like that who kind of has the relationships and the know-how and can do things more efficiently than a, a first-timer. Mm -hmm. um, or somebody who's such a prolific producer that they have so many shows going on that they couldn't possibly oversee that many shows. Um, and there's probably two, two people in the industry that, that fit under that description of it. Um, right. And then associate producers, that's kind of fallen out of use um, in the past several years. But that's generally a producer who's not quite raising money to the level as a co-producer. Um, mm -hmm. And so they'll still get billing on the title page and the playbill. Um, they'll still be included in some meetings, but the big uh, the big change a, a few years ago was co-producers are no, I'm sorry, uh, associate producers are no longer eligible for Tony Award nominations. Um, so that, that took some of the people who typically would associate produce and now they kind of bumped up to co-produce to get that extra eligibility. Now, I know that you've worked a little bit in the film and television business. I know that you have, obviously, the, you're, the, you're the executive producer for Indoor Boys, and you were even working as a PA on the secondary unit there in Chicago on the Blues Brothers 2000. So my question to you was, how exactly do the two mediums between film and television producing as well as uh, theater producing, how do those two differ? Yeah, I mean, my film experience is very minimal. I happen right. to work at NBC Universal, but in their live entertainment division. Correct. Um, I happened to help produce Indoor Boys, but that's because theater colleagues of mine were doing it and I could offer some assistance. Correct. Um, you know, it's two, in a way, two completely, totally different worlds. Mm -hmm. um, one of the best things and absolute worst things about Broadway commercial theater um, is that even though we're a multi-billion dollar operation, you know, every year or every year prior to 2020, we were bringing in many billions of dollars at yes. least one in New York, one on the road. Mm -hmm. But we're still a very much a mom-and-pop operation. And you, if you're driven and passionate and you have a good idea, there's a very strong chance 
you can get a show on Broadway. You you can't do that in Hollywood any anymore the way you could in the 40s or 50s where you you fly into Hollywood and have a dream and pitch a studio head and they'll make your movie. That it's too corporate now. Um, so I think that's the biggest difference is that we're still kind of a, a little bit of a mom and pop operation. Um, we're still, you know, the vast majority of shows are independent producers, not big corporate producers. Right. Um, and just it's a you know it's just a very slightly different business model. And I kind of compare it to, you know, if I was at home cooking dinner and I cut my finger, I could probably call my dentist and he could suture up my finger and I'd be just fine. But I'd certainly rather have my doctor do it. And so it's the same way, like if I tried to produce a film, I could probably do it. I could probably do a decent job at it, but I wouldn't do it as efficiently or as well as someone who does that for a living. And the same thing with a a film producer coming into theater. Right. I also, I'm literally inside, I'm melting at that reference that you just made. Um, So your work is very diverse from new work to revivals to plays to musicals. So what interests you more and why? Is it something developing something from infancy or working something that already exists already? Um, I think I'm a little different than the majority of my colleagues in that I tend to get involved with the project when it's more or less ready to go. Where Mm -hmm. I think a lot of my colleagues want to be in the room when that spark of the original idea was made. Right. I don't have the patience to wait that eight, 10, 15 years between that spark of the idea and getting it on stage. So right. kind of my, my sweet spot is getting on board when there's more or less a final draft of the script, but before anyone has been attached other than the authors. Um, right. Because I think I have a lot of value to bring there and helping to put together a team. Um, and that's not to say I don't love new work and I don't love incubating new work. It's just truly I have a limited amount of time and resources in my day. And so I want to really focus on things that I can get to the stage and, you know, two, three, four years from now, not eight, nine, or 10 years from now. Right, right. I I, I totally respect that. I, I mean, as you say, it, Hamilton's not written overnight. Like, these things take years and years and years. Um, so you have also, you've consulted for major studios, producers, agencies. So how exactly does marketing your film differ from marketing your theater show? Um, I mean, the, the two big differences are, first of all, money. Right, we have yeah. a very tiny, small fraction amount of the marketing budget of even a, a mid-level, you know, independent film that gets right. released. Right. Um, and market size, you know, uh, a, don't even count streaming services, which are available to a, a huge, you know, pool of people. But even traditional theatrical releases, you know, your film can be released in thousands of theaters, each of which, you know, can attract hundreds of thousands of audience members. Commercial Broadway theater, we're restricted to 41 theaters in this very specific section of Manhattan, each of which seat about 1,000 people. Um, So, you know, our our distribution is so limited, and that's part of what makes a Broadway show magical. It's it's this, you know, thing that only exists in this certain, you know, place in the city at this certain period of time for this certain finite number of people who are in the audience. But that's the biggest thing is um, we have smaller money a smaller pool of money to pull from and a smaller audience that we're going after. Gotcha. And if I'm an initial investor on a show on Broadway and it becomes a hit and then a tour starts and a West End production's announced, et cetera, et cetera, do those initial investors have the opportunity to invest again first or is it just fair game for new people to become initial investors on a new production? Uh, no, the, so the investors in the original production have right. the right of first refusal to invest their their same percentage in the tour. Right. Um, and a lot of people uh, will invest in a show specifically for that because it's very tough to invest in a tour of something if you weren't one of the original investors. Correct. And that makes sense. The risk is a lot less on a tour. If the show is going on tour, 
that means it was pretty well received in New York. And mm -hmm. when a, a show goes on tour, you're typically booking it into venues that are meeting your guarantee. Meaning the worst case scenario is you'll break even, right? It's uh, knock on wood, but it's very difficult <laughs> to lose a lot of money on the road. Um, and there's been plenty of examples of shows that didn't quite recoup on Broadway, mm -hmm. but made enough money on the road to, you know, make up for the little the little bit that they didn't recover on Broadway. So that that's, you know, there are certainly people who say no to investing in the tour, right? People lose jobs, get divorced, who who knows? Right. Um, but typically you're then offering that available slot to some of the other investors if, if they want to take on more. So it's pretty rare for an outsider who wasn't involved in the original production to be able to invest in a tour or West End or something like that. Well, I guess that makes sense too, that you'd make more money on the road because you're getting access to theaters that are like 3,000 seat theaters and 2,500 2, seat theater, right? So you're getting way more people. As you say, you're, 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 you only need to fill it at a, a 50% to even just start to break even. Yeah. And many of those theaters have subscribers. So, you know, a quarter of the seats are sold before you even, you even come into town. Your, your costs are typically lower. It's a little cheaper to produce outside of New York. Right. By that time, you've learned lessons from New York and you've kind of been able to streamline the production and really, you know, um, you know, be operated as efficiently as possible. So it, you know, no investing in any kind of theatrical endeavor is always a risky, you know, uh, investment. But that's of of the levels of risk that shows have. That that's on the lower end, certainly. Right. And actually, speaking of risks, there's a lot of films adapting to musicals. I mean, you did you did Tootsie, and they're becoming more popular each year. Is it because it is less risk for producers and investors knowing that their audiences will recognize a title like Tootsie or Groundhog Day or Pretty Woman and will buy tickets? Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's a big part of it. There's you know, there's not a big correlation between shows based on a property that are well known and financial performance, but I think it, it gives you two things. One, I think it's a lot easier to raise money for a show that's based on a movie or a TV show, and I think that's because most potential investors wrongly assume like, oh, if this was a hit in some other medium, it must be a hit on Broadway. Right. Um, and, and that's not something new, right? My Fair Lady was based on a, like, we just used to base things on plays and, you know, that's right. other yeah. forms. Now, it used to go now the, the other way. Now it's exactly. coming back this way. Now, yeah. now the thing is movies. Right, um, right. So I think it's easier to raise money. Um, and it's certainly easier to market. I don't know that, again, that makes the show more successful, but think of something as simple as a Google AdWord, which, you know, online digital advertising is, you know, we should be spending more money there as an industry, but we spend a lot there. Um, I could be off by like 10 characters, but I, I think Google gives you 180 characters in your ad. Not, not words, 180 letters, including spaces. So if oh I have God. a brand new musical and I'm you know, trying to sell this to you online, how do you describe and get someone interested in that musical with 180 letters? If this is a big Hollywood film that people know, the moment they see that title, you no longer have to describe to them what the show is. You can use the title and then there. talk about pricing or opening dates or... So I, I think that is a definite benefit to a branded show, um, but I don't know that it's the sure bet that a lot of people wrongly assume it is. Right. Wow. That's crazy. Only 180 just char like characters, including spaces. That's, I mean, that's crazy. There, there's certainly a lot of different digital inventory, but kind of when you're literally Googling and you know, the text ads on the top, um, right. yeah, you, get, you get a headline and then two, two short lines of text underneath it. 
My God, that's crazy. And so in the West End, there are almost always television and film stars attached to productions to keep butts in the seats. So, and I mean, we actually have had a guest on that says some theaters are like, we need to make sure that you have someone like that so I can guarantee that people are going to be coming into my theater. So when you're marketing a Broadway show, are you advising on casting decisions that you think will keep the money flowing in? Um, I mean, yes, certainly advising on casting decisions, right? Ultimately, that's something that I'm, well, that's I'm, your I'm generally your letting the yeah. creative team run with that, but I ultimately have approval. Yeah. Um, but I think that kind of goes back to a, 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 you know, something based on a movie or a property people know. Right. Will a celebrity help get you attention, help get you press, help you know, get you interviews and things like that that you otherwise wouldn't normally get? Of course. Right. Mm-hmm. But they don't contribute um, to the financial success of a show in the same way. And this one I actually have hard data on. We went back uh, eight seasons uh, shows that had celebrities in the cast. Uh, and we went, there's a, a company that does this thing called Q score. Every celebrity has a rating about how well known they are to the general public. Wow. Um, and if you had select, so we, this wasn't like a, we decided who was a celebrity. We, we picked a, a number 70, anyone above that we considered a celebrity. Those shows recouped at a rate of 20%, which is kind of the standard you hear for out of four out of five. Right. Um, if you did not have a celebrity 26%, if you had a celebrity, so that's wow. certainly nothing to sneeze at, but a six-point difference, you know, is not like oh, if we get this big movie star, of course, you know, we're 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 going to make a lot of money. Right. Um, and often, what happens is when you have a person of that caliber, yes, you're getting this extra press, you're getting this extra excitement and buzz, but they're getting a lot of extra money. You know, they're they're used to Hollywood rates and not right. not theater rates. So I think, right. you know, if my at least personal philosophy is if that celebrity is absolutely perfect for the role. And if they were an unknown person and they came in the room and you would still consider them for the role, 100%, then that extra you know, magic they bring to it is wonderful. If you're saying we need a celebrity for this role, casting department, give me a list of 100 celebrities' names who might be right and you're gonna pick a name from that list, I think that's typically not good for a show. No, I, I, I 100% agree with you. That's like crazy. That's crazy. Those numbers. Like, I mean, the six percent difference does though. That's pretty big, though, isn't it? In terms of when you're dealing with the size of numbers that you're dealing with, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you have a six point. You're six points more likely to recoup, but six right. out of a hundred. So to me, that's not you know, that's not the deciding factor. And right. You know, there's been plenty of examples. I won't name names because I, I love <laughs> no. all my colleagues. Yes, but of course. There's been plenty of examples with you know huge A-list celebrities, and these shows have just barely recouped. Right. Um, so, you know, again, if it, if it makes sense for the show 100%, I think it's also a different conversation if you have a long-running show that's been going for years. And, right. you know, Chicago. every... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every year you're putting a celebrity in there to kind of keep people coming back and keep getting press. I think that's a, a different conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And you want to know something? I've seen shows with celebrities in them and it seemed like, I won't say who, I mean, not that they're listening to this podcast, but but what I want to say is that I, like, it seemed like he was phoning it in. He like, there was like the, the, the highest part of the show, the most exciting part of the show, like the big, you know, the, the tipping point, the climax. And he just went, oh, and I was like, What's going on? I was like, what, what the hell? I was like, I'm being sold short the story here. I'm like, I know you've done it eight times a week and probably two times today, but like, come on. But anyway, yeah. So in terms of marketing, if you think a show's title should change and will be more clickable or sell, sell more tickets, how do you begin to approach the writer with a conversation like that? Because for a lot of, for, I mean, for a lot of these writers, I mean, these are their babies, right? So how do you approach a delicate conversation like that? Um, I mean, I think I, 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 I 
pretty confident. I know I approach it very differently than most of my colleagues. Okay. Um, and this goes back to my time at Universal, where they treated their live theater properties the same way they would treat their film properties, which is, you know, the first thing is we're going to do a market sizing analysis before we spend a lot of money on this. Are there enough people in the world who would be interested in buying a ticket to this show? And, right. right. Every industry does this. It's very rare nowadays for someone to say, we're going to spend money on something. We don't care or know if anyone's even interested in seeing this. Right. Um, and that's not to say, you know, sometimes that research might come back. And especially if it's a very unique story that hasn't been told that people don't understand. Mm hmm. Maybe that that survey data doesn't come back in the way you want, and you still might move forward for the project with the project. So it's not like I'm saying I'm I'm trying to do something for the lowest common denominator here. Right. But I want to make sure there's enough people in the world who will buy tickets, and part of that is the title. Um, you know, I test on every show I do interest and awareness based on title alone, because again, right. going back to you know Twitter and Google AdWords and even the ABCs and the New York Times and Playbills, most people's first impression of your show will be the title alone. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be what drives them to either ask a friend or Google it or move on to the next show. Right. Um, so I'm very clear with my authors up front that this is something that I'm going to have a very strong opinion about. Um, you know, I would like you to, you know, if, if this comes back and there's no interest in this specific title, I'm going to want you to come to the table and let's discuss, you know, are there other titles that, that might be appropriate? Um, you know, the author is king in our industry. They're always going to have the final say there. But I, I make it very clear going forward that, hey, my goal is to get as many people as possible to see your show, to get your art in the world, and then hopefully get money in your pockets. And I've never, uh, so I test every title. I've never once had to kind of, you know, strongly suggest that we change a title. There's been a couple of times where as a group, we've decided, oh, this is, let's try this instead. Right. Um, so no one has been resistant to it so far, Not, knock on wood. Well, you want to know something? I want to play a game. It's called Radio Play, where we get to know you, Cody Lassen, the person, rather than you, Cody Lassen, the producer. So, this is Radio Play. What time do you wake up in the morning? Nine o'clock. I'm a night owl. Oh, favorite lyric from a music theater song? Oh, uh, that would be whatever uh, song I'm listening to in the rehearsal room on the show I'm working on at that time. Love that. Current favorite television show? Um, it's a sin. Oh, I really want to watch that. That's on. Yeah, okay. Well, we'll talk about it after. <laughs> HBO, I know, but it's. It, I have it on my Amazon too. Which oh is yeah, weird. yeah. It's on Amazon too. Okay, okay. Just confirming. That was like, are there two different sin shows? Okay. Uh, unlimited budget. What show are you producing? Uh, I unlimited budget. I would love to support a fresh, new voice who has a really unique idea. Love that too. Uh, which celebrity that you've met excited you the most? Uh, oh God, that's uh, a hard one. Um, may, you know, in our world, she's a huge celebrity, Vianne Cox. Uh, most uh, famous person you have in your phone? Oh, uh, uh, most famous person I have in my phone, um, Nancy Pelosi. Oh, there's no. Oh my God, I'm my. A lot of people bring up um, like politicians. I've had, we've had presidents, we've had Nan Nancy Pelosi. That, that's great. because they they call and email and text for donations. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. That's why. Okay. Um, a performance you wish you could relive. Oh gosh, maybe the closing night of Spring Awakening. Underrated musical. Fat Boy. Ideal Friday night. Uh, I mean, at home, uh, relaxing, watching a great movie, but I've done that every day for the past year, so that feels like a bad answer. <laughs> I know. Um, a guilty pleasure? Um, uh, oh, uh, watching terrible reality TV. 
What are you scared of? Not taking risks. What does a person need to be happy? Uh, the basics, food in your stomach and a roof over your head. Do you believe in love at first sight? Yeah. If you couldn't be a producer, what would you be? Uh, oh, God, I don't know that I could be anything else. Um, uh, I would be a producer in another medium. I would probably be doing film or something. Should award shows exist? Yes. Do ghosts exist? Sure. Do aliens exist? Yeah, more likely than ghosts. Um, and the best advice you've ever been given? Um, knock on every door and make every call and send every email. The worst that will happen is someone will ignore you, but maybe you will find a great piece of advice or a mentor or someone who can help you along your journey. Well, that's Radio Play. I love that answer. Do you think, so you think aliens exist more than ghosts do? Yes, I think the probability of there being life somewhere in the universe is probably higher than the probability that ghosts actually exist. I would like, I would like them both to exist. I would too. I really hope in our lifetime we get to like see aliens or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. Like I, I just, I, I would love to see what that's like. I wasn't one of those people who stormed Area 51, just for the record. <laughs> for all our listeners who are in India, we're very popular in India, by the way. Just so you know. I'm not, I wasn't one of those people. Okay, so what do you wish you knew about producing or Broadway producing now that you wish you knew at the start of your career? Uh, it would have been helpful just to understand that fundraising is a, a relatively small part of the job. And I think mm -hmm. that scares a lot of people away because they think I don't have a bunch of rich friends. I can't do this. That's not the case. Um, and I wish I would have known that nobody really knows what they're doing. Right. Like right. Even the, the people who are we consider the titans of our industry for a long part of their career. And I bet many of them would say even now they're kind of winging it and just doing the best that they can. There's not this moment where you think like, OK, I know everything there is to know. I'm, I'm ready to go. You just have to do it because you'll you'll never be ready to go. And as a producer, what is the most challenging aspect of your job today? Um, I mean, in terms of like just my daily work, probably time management there is never enough time to do everything in a given day. So, you know, getting really good about what can you delegate, what can you put off or, or cancel, and what should you focus your limited hours on. Right. And Broadway is known to be very white and very old. And when it comes to theater goers and people who are buying these tickets, that's, that's who is buying, buying tickets. So as someone who markets and consults with multiple producers, how do we shift from older white folk to more a diverse audience? Uh, I'll answer that in two parts. The first part is we actually don't have an old audience, but everyone assumes we do. And I think we've all been to matinees where we're surrounded by what seems like octogenarians. That's <laughs> um, but the, the, the most recent data we have is from the 19th season for obvious reasons. Right. Um, and the average age is 42.3 of the Broadway theater goer, which is just oh. slightly older than 38, which is the average age of everyone in the country. Um, but the NFL, you know, professional American football, the average right. age of those spectators is, is 47. For oh. baseball, it's 53. Um, so, you know, we, while certainly, you know, you, you have to kind of be at a place in your life where you can afford tickets. And that's part of my second part of my answer. Um, right. I don't think our audience is, is old compared to kind of other forms of entertainment. Mm -hmm. We can certainly do a better job of getting more young people interested in theater and broaden our audience in general, because the more people we have interested at a young age, you know, the more people will have interested at an old age, and we want, we want them all. Um, but that's not something that worries me, the, the age of the audience. What does worry me is the second part of this is, um, you know, diversity of our audience. Um, 
and accessibility because it is, you know, it's not an inexpensive thing to put on a show and it's not mm -hmm. an inexpensive thing to buy a ticket to a show. Um, but I do find it fascinating that you don't, you know, going to see a professional sporting event is on par with the cost of a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. Going to see, um, you know, a Beyonce concert is generally quite a bit more than a, a show, yeah. a Broadway show, but we don't That's really right. talk about concerts and sporting events being overpriced and inaccessible. Now, the big difference there, of course, is that sporting events are televised and you can usually watch them for free or very low cost. And, you know, while concerts, some of them are, are filmed, um, even the ones that aren't filmed, there's generally an album. So you can appreciate that music and, and that performance. Um, so I think the more we can do to make theater accessible by by filming it and by doing more cast albums and, and making that be one of the entry points that doesn't cost a lot, I think that is a great path to go down. Um, and then certainly the diversity of our audiences is a problem. We're getting a little bit better at the diversity of the folks on stage. And everybody wants to see themselves on stage, right? You want to see your story told. So it's hard to diversify your audience if you don't have those stories being told. We, we have a long ways to go, but I think we've, we've made some good steps there. Um, you know, one of the kind of interesting things is speaking to colleagues who, you know, very specifically target demographics, whether it's, you know, a, a black audience or uh, a deaf audience, you know, there's, there's specialists who reach out to those audiences that shows higher. And I've had just fascinating conversations with some of these people who say, you know, Cody, I get hired for the color purple. I get hired for the Lion King. The, the communities I reach out to want to see, you know, Les Mis and Phantom of the Opera as much as these shows, but I don't get hired for these shows and I don't understand it because you know, as well as anyone, when you hire me, I'm going to sell way more tickets than what you're paying me. It, like, it's worth it for you. So why aren't you hiring me on these other shows? Um, and so that was a big moment for me several years ago of, well, first of all, it's the right thing to do because that will help move the needle and diversify our audiences. Second, if you're a colleague of mine and you don't give a damn about diversity, which you should, but if you don't, it's still a good business move. It's a smart way to sell more tickets to your show. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of these industry groups right now kind of diving in and trying to fix these problems. Some of these things will take years to fix because we're a huge industry where we're all independent companies. Um, but there's some things I can control, right? I can say, for instance, on every show that I produce, half of the people working on this show will be underrepresented communities, whether that's BIPOC or trans or, you know, mm -hmm. differing abilities. Right. Um, so when I have the ability myself to just say like, this is the way I'm going to do it, I'm a hundred percent doing that. Um, and then I'm doing it, you know, as much as I can with all these industry committees who are trying to, to change things that just, unfortunately, the bureaucracy is making it take longer than I would or anyone would like it to happen. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and as you say, it's a business, it's a smart business move. It, it's a business to bring in money. So why wouldn't you, like, why wouldn't you make the smarter move for business? Not only because it's morally right, but it's also going to serve you well too, right? Exactly. I mean, and I, I you know, there's an argument that, you know, Broadway shows have a very small pool of money to pull from marketing wise compared to like consumer packaged goods or other forms of entertainment. So right. what we all do as shows is you go after, we call them theater avids, people who see a lot of theater. That's the low hanging fruit. We know who they are. We know how to reach them. We know they're going to buy tickets. Right. But the, and so that's, I don't want to say lazy because that's the most cost effective way to sell tickets. But the way problem it, is yeah. if you keep going to the same people over and over, yes, they're buying tickets, but you'll never diversify your audience. And in the long run, that's just not a healthy way to market to people. 
well, it just tunnel visions what everyone sees. And I, I don't know if there's a quote about this, but I, I had spoken to someone and they said, you know, I can't be what I can't see. And, you know, for me, for all three of us, we were lucky enough to sit in the seat and be able to sit there and see ourselves on stage, weren't we? Whereas someone who who's black might not have that same opportunity. So to be able to create that for someone kind of makes your job even more fulfilling. So to be able to do that, as, as I say, it, I think it's the better thing. Oh, completely. It, I mean, it's, it's the, the right thing to do. And it's also the, the smart business thing to do. So I do think, you know, minds are changing, not as, you know, in terms of people who are making these decisions. I think right. as a new generation of theater makers comes up into the world and starts producing their own shows and you see a new generation of leadership at the main, you know, theater owners, yeah. um, things are changing. We just need to, you know, push people to, to make this change happen much, much sooner and make sure that, um, you know, we're listening to all the voices in the industry and opening these rooms to everybody who wants to be a part of it. Um, so as we're making these changes, you know, it's not a bunch of older white guys making the changes, but we're, right. we're including everyone um, to, you know, to make this happen sooner rather than later. I mean, I think that's the best the best way to end this podcast. Cody, I seriously, I can't thank you enough for taking your time out of your day to go into your office, to come and talk to us. I, I, I truly, really appreciate it. Uh, your insights have been invaluable and I'm, I'm really, really happy that you could join us today. I'm happy to be here and, and thanks for holding, holding back the curtain, letting people peek behind and, and see how shows get made. Of course, thank you. All right, well, we appreciate it and take care. This has been a Brown Stuff production. <laughs>